Warning, the following show contains explicit language. Certain people should not listen to this show, such as children and panty-waist adults who cry like 12-year-old little girls when they hear profanity. Welcome back, my friends. I am Dave Champion, and today we're going to talk about something out of the city of New York. Not a place I often hear a lot of great things coming out of news that excites me, but there is an exception, and this is it. The New York City Council has voted as part of a larger police reform package to end the practice of qualified immunity for police officers. Now, I'm going to explain to you what qualified immunity is. You may think you know, um, but I'm going to suggest to you that there's more to it than the superficial things you've heard in the news about it or seen on social media. And those things may result in a difference in how you see the issue of qualified immunity. Now, I want to be clear, typically, people who are on the right support qualified immunity. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. And people on the left are not. Now, I'm going to posit to you today that it's absolutely not a left-right. It's absolutely not a Republican-Democrat issue whatsoever. It is an issue of government accountability. So if you support qualified immunity, I want to suggest that New York City's move is positive because it will increase accountability. One would think a discussion about qualified immunity would begin with my describing precisely what qualified immunity is. And I'm not going to. (laughs) I'll get there. But that's not where the conversation starts for me. The conversation starts for me at the conclusion of the American Civil War. (laughs) You're like, what? Why are we talking about that in terms of qualified immunity? There's a connection. That's why. Okay, so at the end of the Civil War, the freed black slaves from the southern states did not have citizenship because citizenship then as now, the de jure citizenship, the the same citizenship as George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, that citizenship then as now is derived from your birth upon the land in a state of the union. And when the freed slaves, when the slaves were freed at the conclusion of the Civil War, the constitutions of the states from which they'd been freed did not grant them citizenship. It didn't matter that the North had won the war. The constitution of those southern states still did not grant those black slaves that were now free citizenship. What Congress did was enacted, what they went to the states, and they adopted through the state amendment process the 14th Amendment. And people are very confused in the U.S. about what the 14th Amendment really does. So I'm going to tell you, the 14th Amendment created a second class of citizen, and I don't mean that as in second class, although it is. I mean it was second, because the first one was the de jure citizenship people got got from being born upon the land under the State of the Union. So this is a second form of citizenship, and it is indeed second class. By the 14th Amendment, the freed black slaves who did not have citizenship because the constitution of the states in which they were born did not provide it, were then granted this U.S. government citizenship, this federal citizenship, and it applied, according to the Supreme Court, it applied not only to the freed black slaves, but to their posterity. So with that under our belts, now we get to the part about the 14th Amendment, which pertains to qualified immunity. The 14th Amendment gives Congress the responsibility, the authority to protect its citizenship, to protect its citizens, to protect the citizens covered under the 14th Amendment, which people are going to say this is racist and it's not. This is absolute constitutional law. 
when I say gives Congress the right to protect the citizens and the citizenship of and the rights of the 14th Amendment citizens, it's not white folks, and that is not a racial statement. The Supreme Court has specifically said the 14th Amendment applied to the freed black slaves, to their posterity, and to others similarly situated, like the Chinese that were held not necessarily in slavery, but in in a form of bondage on the West Coast. So generally speaking, the 14th Amendment had absolutely no bearing on white people. And by the way, the sponsors of the bill, the people who supported the bill, the people who, who, I'm sorry, not the bill, the amendment, who talked it up, who wanted it ratified, they said, point blank, it has nothing to do with white folks. If perchance you want to know more about that part of the discussion, you can go to a website called originalintent.org. Click on the education. There's three little circles that come up when you go there. Click on the circle that says education. And then there are three treatises I would suggest you read. One is citizenship. The other is constitutions. And the last one is the 14th Amendment clarified. You can get away with reading just the 14th Amendment clarified. But if you want to be really well-rounded in all this, I would suggest you read the treatise on citizenship first, then the one on constitutions, and then the one entitled 14th Amendment clarified. So now we understand to whom the 14th Amendment properly applies, and we understand that Congress in the amendment is tasked with, is the authority to protect the citizens embraced by the 14th Amendment. What form of protection does that often take? Well, the ones that's most familiar to Americans is the Civil Rights Acts. And qualified immunity is directly tied to these Civil Rights Acts. Let me explain how it went. Going into the 60s, we had the Civil Rights Act of 1960, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And then in 1967, the Supreme Court fashioned out of thin air the doctrine of qualified immunity. I'm going to read you a fairly sound definition of qualified immunity. Then I'm going to read you a very brief snippet from the Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court created the concept of qualified immunity out of thin air. And then I'm going to tell you exactly what qualified immunity was intended to do when it was first created by the Supreme Court in 1967. Okay, so on with a fairly decent definition. Qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions, that's different than ministerial functions, but that's a video for another day, immunity from civil suits, nothing to do with criminal, unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated, quote, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable officer would have known. Close quote. Okay, so quick recap on that. It provides government employees, it calls them government officials, but government employees with immunity in civil suits if they were performing a discretionary task. The most important thing to understand about qualified immunity, the most important thing and this is going to bring us all back around to the city of New York here in a few minutes. The most important thing is the way the Supreme Court fashioned the doctrine of qualified immunity, it is automatic. So if you're a government employee performing a discretionary function and you get sued, boom, you have qualified immunity. 
The burden for removing qualified immunity rests with the plaintiff who alleges that they were harmed by the government officials' actions. Wow, that is really bass-ackwards. Trying to get somebody who has been injured by the government and a specific agent of the government to prove that that agent doesn't deserve qualified immunity, that's not supporting the rights of the people. That's supporting government power And it's completely bass-ackwards, and we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But it's an important principle to understand right now that it's automatic, in this case we're talking about police officers, it's automatic for them, unless such and such can be shown by the plaintiff. So the burden of proof ends up being on the plaintiff. So here's the short quote from Pearson v. Ray, which was a Supreme Court case in which the court fashioned out of whole cloth in 1967, the principle, the doctrine of qualified immunity. And the quote is this, a policeman's lot is not so unhappy that he must choose between being charged with dereliction of duty if he does not arrest when he had probable cause and being punished with damages if he does. Okay, so you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, if he had probable cause, how can any of this be wrong? Okay, so the court's being disingenuous in that quote, and I want to be very clear about that. Here's what was happening. Remember I talked about the Civil Rights Act of 1960, then 64, then 65, and then miraculously in 67, the Supreme Court fashions the Qualified Immunity Doctrine. So let me tell you exactly what this is all about. Despite the fact that the North won the Civil War and the slaves were freed, the vast majority of America, which would be white, back at the time the Supreme, uh, the Civil War ended, and moving forward for 100 100 plus years, the vast majority of the population of America said, okay, so black people are not slaves. That's cool. We dig that. That that was wrong. But they're sure as hell not equal to us. That, That was, I mean, that sounds bizarre, yes? It has dwindled over time, so it's kind of hard for people in 2021 to really get their arms around that. But that was the fact. I mean, you go back till I say just, I'm going to pull a number out of my hat, 1940. You could have t- if you could have taken a poll on this, virtually no white Americans would have believed that blacks, would have said that blacks were equal to rights or entitled to everything on the exact same level as whites. That just was not a cultural belief. And of course, that played out in law enforcement as well. Uh, I remember when I was a young boy, probably 11-ish, there was a big shopping center about a half a block from my house, and the security was all off-duty cops. And I would go over there, and I had befriended them, and they liked me, and so I'd hang around them. And they would talk in front of me. And, I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, they probably had, I'm going to guess, a dozen uh, LAPD officers as off-duty security. And it didn't matter which two or three were working the evenings that I would go over there. It was very, very clear that they viewed black Americans differently than they viewed white Americans. Although at like 11, I didn't really get that that was a problem. I was just like, oh, okay, okay, okay. The point being that 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 was in the 60s, which is exactly the era we're talking about where the Supreme Court fashioned out of whole cloth the concept of qualified immunity. So here's what happened. Police officers across the nation, virtually every single police department, they treated black citizens or black suspects, depending on the circumstances, 
totally different than they treated white citizens or white suspects. There was a huge divide in the law enforcement world on how those two different groups got treated. I mean, it sounds bad, but it's, it's, it's the truth of that era. We're just doing the shit they'd always done, which is treat blacks completely different than they tr- treated white as far as the officer's commission of his job, that discretionary function that the doctrine of qualified immunity addresses. So really what the Supreme Court was saying is, okay, so we've had 100 plus years of race, rampant racism, even though blacks are no longer slaves, rampant racism, Jim Crow laws, on and on and on, right? So suddenly Congress waves its magic wand, and now what we're seeing is individual cops being dragged into civil court, and they're being financially knocked for doing what they've always done. We've got to slow that shit down. That's all qualified immunity was originally about. But of course, as with most things, when the government gets a power, doesn't matter whether it's a power granted by the legislature or a power, in this case, fashioned at a whole cloth by the courts, when the government gets a power, it's going to abuse it. And oh, qualified immunity is one of the worst. It's right up there with asset forfeiture. And of course, the Supreme Court couldn't just say, no, 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 hey, hey, qualified immunity only applies to cops that have violated the statutory rights that Congress has put in place uh, by the Civil Rights Act of 60-64-65 to protect this other class of citizenship, which is most black folks. So you can't apply it to other kinds of... The Supreme Court couldn't come out and say that, right? Qualified immunity, yeah, it's just when cops are violating the rights of 14th Amendment citizens who are not the average white guy on the street. Supreme Court couldn't say that. So now, over the years, qualified immunity applies to cops completely, all the time, in everything they do, no matter who they're fucking with, no matter whose rights they're violating, they are protected. With all I've said, you might think that I find qualified immunity a terrible doctrine. I don't. I find it a terrible doctrine as practiced, as engaged in, as established by the United States Supreme Court. Do I believe that any government official, even cops out of it from any government official, who is doing exactly what the Constitution dictates, exactly what the statute dictates, exactly, and is staying within the boundaries of the constitutional rights of the people they're encountering, do I believe that that person should have to be held personally liable simply because they're a government employee? I don't. But the system as it exists, is broken. And I will tell you, was it just a year or two ago, uh, there was a paper put out by a rather prestigious political science professor saying exactly that, saying qualified immunity as it is applied in this country, uh, in the United States, in the applications it is, this wholesale granting of it to every cop in America is a broken system that needs to be fixed. We're going to talk in a moment about how to fix it. I should tell you that not everyone on the New York City Council voted for this package, this large package of police reforms, of which one element was getting rid of qualified immunity for NYPD officers. There is a councilman, Robert F. Holden, and this is a statement from him. Ending qualified immunity will prevent the best young men and women in our city from joining the police department. Eh, Wrong answer! (laughs) Totally wrong. 
It will encourage the best men and women, and it will discourage the pieces of crap who just want a good paying job with benefits and they are weak of moral character. They are unethical. They are willing to fuck people over to get ahead. Those people will no longer want to become cops, and those people should have never been cops in the first place. And that brings me to how I believe the qualified immunity standard should be applied in the United States. We need to reverse the current paradigm, which is that it automatically applies if you are a government employee and you're performing a discretionary function. If that's so, then you automatically have qualified immunity. We need to flip that on its head. We need to completely reverse that. When a person, a plaintiff, claims in court that they have been wronged, their constitutional rights, their unalienable rights, or statutory rights, however you want to characterize that, have been violated by that particular agent that they're suing, by that I mean enforcement agent, there needs to not be the presumption of qualified immunity. But, and here's the real kicker to this, give that government enforcement agent the opportunity to earn qualified immunity by placing evidence into the record of that proceeding. And that brings us to the elements that an officer can submit into the evidentiary record of the proceeding in order to earn qualified immunity. So here are the points that I believe the defendant officer should enter into evidence in order to earn qualified immunity. Number one, was the officer in his actions, could he reasonably have understood himself to be obedient to the relevant sections of his state's constitution, to which every officer takes an oath? Okay. Number two, was the officer, based on his training and experience, obedient to the federal constitution, again, to which every officer takes an oath of allegiance? especially when we talk about the federal constitution, we get into the issue of reasonable suspicion and probable cause. And those are usually pretty tightly wrapped up in a question of whether the, whether the officer's actions were wrongful. In a great percentage of these cases, whether the officer had reasonable suspicion or whether the officer had probable cause is, is a big part of that equation. So, being obedient to the U.S. Constitution, which would include the doctrines of reasonable suspicion and probable cause, is something that the officer should place on the record based on his, his training and experience. He understood, based on the totality of circumstances, the facts at hand, that he did have reasonable suspicion or he did have probable cause. I do want to take a moment and talk about CYA. No, in, for normal people in society, that's normally thought cover your ass. In law enforcement, it stands for can you articulate. One of the reasons I think it's, a, it's important, since the judge is hearing this, not, not a jury as far as can the, in my scenario, can the defendant officer earn qualified immunity, can you articulate um, is probably best determined by a judge. What I mean by that is if, if an officer is skilled and charismatic and knows exactly which points to add and which points to not testify to, they might be able to bamboozle ignorant jurors. Uh, it's, it's harder <laughs> for a cop when it comes to reasonable suspicion and probable cause to bamboozle a judge. 
And I'm in no way saying it's a perfect scenario. I, there is no perfect scenario because we're talking about human beings and the law. But I think it's better that the officer has to make his case about reasonable suspicion and probable cause to a judge, not to 12 ignorant Americans who don't understand the legality of any of that. Number three, the totality of the facts meet the statute. Let me explain how law works, especially from a police officer's side of things. You've got the law, what it says. In, in the case of police officers, things that are generally prohibited, that's the context in which cops work, that's prohibited by statute. And then you have the facts, which is, did that guy or that gal do something which is violative of that prohibition, right? So the defendant officer who wants to earn qualified immunity should be required to show the judge, okay, here's the here's the actions I perceived the plaintiff in the lawsuit had committed, which was violative of the exact language of the statute or statutes, okay? Because, again, judges are more in tune with that kind of issue than 12 ignorant jurors. So a judge, being steeped in the law and working with the law day in and day out for decades in most cases, is better prepared to determine whether that officer is BSing or whether that officer actually, the facts met the, the burden placed on the officer by the law to show this and such, reasonable suspicion and probable cause. So the officer should have to present evidence to the court substantiating to a, to a fairly certain degree that the fact situation was relevant to the perceived offense. Make sense? Number four, did the officer follow department training? For me, based on my experience in law enforcement, this is huge. This should perhaps be, I, I probably should have put it as number one. Okay? And here's why. For instance, when an officer goes through the academy, let's say they're going to do a felony stop. They are taught a traffic stop. They're taught how to use cover and concealment. When they're going to approach what they perceive to be a dangerous suspect on the street, they are taught to use cover and concealment. That's in the academy. That is how we, the people, through our institution, have trained these cops to do what they do, right? And then the cops go out on the street, and they completely ignore the training, and they do whatever the fuck they want. A good example is, and you can see this, especially on YouTube, time and time and time and time and time again, when you're looking at either officer's body cam footage or a bystander caught it on a cell phone, in that kind of footage, you'll see it all the time. A suspect is presumed to be armed, and you'll see the cop or cops get out of the unit, guns at the ready, and they will start advancing on the suspect. Get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground. They're advancing on the suspect. So keep in mind, they only think it's the guy. It may not be the guy, right? So what if the guy scratches his ass? The cops have no, they, they don't have a nanosecond to find out whether the guy's reaching for a gun or scratching his ass, right? Because they're advancing out in the open, guns drawn. The guy reaches back to scratch his ass. Let's say he's mentally ill. Reaches back to scratch to scratch his ass. Boom! boom, 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 boom. The, the two guys unload, you know, eight or nine rounds into the guy and kill him. Now, would they have had to do that if they were behind their car doors, as they were taught in the fucking academy? No, of course not. Would they have had to do that if they chose some sort of cover or concealment 
in the immediate area where the suspect is, which exists in the overwhelming number of cases. No, they would not. If the guy reached back to grab his ass, they would not have to turn him into a bullet sponge because they would have that little bit of extra discretion. So by ignore, I got, I'm just baffled. How many people, how many, I don't know, perhaps tens of thousands of people have been gunned down by police because the cops did not use cover or concealment like they were trained in the fucking academy. They, they were cowboys. They got away from the cover and concealment. They were advancing on the suspect. And if the suspect did anything, the cop's justification is, well, I had like one one hundredth of a second to make that tough decision. Life or death, you know, which it wouldn't have fucking been. I've been using cover and concealment, you fucking cock. So for me, standard number four is that the officer, whatever he did, he can point to what he went through in the academy or in service training and say, I was trained to do it this way. Okay? If he can't do that, if, if, like, wait a second, so that was completely adverse to what you were taught, then he should not get qualified immunity. And the final one, obedience to department policy. This is perhaps the least significant, but it should be in there because department policy exists for a reason. It is meant to carry forward what the community through its police chief, its city council, its sheriff, whoever, what the, how the community expects policing to take place. I say it should be in last place because it, it isn't law. Okay, we want to be very clear about that. So the judge who's going to hear these arguments, if the officer has fulfilled number one, which is obedience to the state constitution, number two, obedience to the federal constitution and proper application of things like reasonable suspicion and probable cause. Number three, the facts meet the statute. Number four, follow department training. When you get to number five, department policy, the judge should determine whether the policy bears upon the foregoing four points. If the policy is unrelated to those four points, it may not be relevant to earning qualified immunity. However, if the policy is in place in furtherance of one through four, and the person ignored the policy, then yeah, that should go into the part of the equation for denying the officer, saying, no, I'm sorry, you did not earn qualified immunity. Over the last handful of years, it seems a number of lower courts have really had some serious doubts about qualified immunity, and there's been cases that would have been unthinkable 15 or 20 years ago where courts have said to an officer, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to waive your qualified immunity. However, that's a trickle. It's, it's not a tsunami. <laughs> this is why what's happening in New York is so important, because NYPD officers will start, they'll go into a suit absent qualified immunity. And if they're going to get it, the, the court is going to have to say, I feel your actions justify now applying qualified immunity to you. To my knowledge, New York City is going to be the first and only place in America with that construct. Because I always say we don't need to presume that this is so or that's so or it would go down like this or make some predictive assessment based on what we think would happen. If there's a place where it's actually really functioning, like New York City is going to, uh, De Bla by the way, the bill has not been signed, but de Blasio, it is said he's going to sign it. So this should be a reality very soon. So this is going to be a place in New York where New York, as far as qualified immunity for officers, will be functioning completely different than the rest of the country. So we can look at the lawsuits that are brought 
against officers in that jurisdiction and see how that plays out in court. We can look and see what sort of recruits now gravitate towards the job and which don't, which I think is going to be great. Uh, But even if the average unethical schlump doesn't really get that he's not in a very good position if he joins NYPD and intends to be weak of morality and weak of ethics and so forth and and is going to get himself in trouble, even if he joins the absence of qualified immunity is going to provide for greater accountability. Now, I think perhaps the last thing I need to talk about is monetary awards, right? Monetary damages in a civil suit. There's nothing about New York's action, uh, which is to strip NYPD officers of their qualified immunity, and I presume this applies to New York transit cops and all sworn peace officers with, that work for the city of New York. However, Some people might think, well, wait a second, you know, if I was wronged, I could get anywhere from hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars from the city of New York. What am I going to get from that fucking cop? He's making $92,000 a year and he's got, you know, a mortgage and three kids. What am I going to get from him? Okay, so it doesn't work that way. It's not either or. (laughs) You can still sue the officer and the agency. If it's a big money case, you'll still get paid from the agency, big dollars. But what will happen is the, there will be a consequence to the officer who's violated your rights. That officer, I mean, whether the monetary award against the officer is 1500 15000 52000 whatever the jury awards against that specific officer who did not earn qualified immunity, yeah, other cops are going to look at that and go, holy shit, I'm not putting myself in that position. Now, also, Right-wingers are going to say, this is going to stop cops from doing their job. No, there's nothing in this that will stop cops from doing their job. All it's going to do is stop cops from violating people's rights wrongfully, because that's the only circumstance in which the cop's going to be held personally accountable, is if he cannot show by the evidence that he was respectful of the Constitution, obedient to it, obedient to the state constitution, federal constitution, the facts of the statute, uh, and the other, the, all five of those criteria I talked about. If the officer is obedient to all of that, he's off the hook, right? So tell me, right-wingers, which of those five elements do you not want cops to engage in when they encounter you? Do you want them not to give a shit about their oath to the U.S. Constitution? Do you want them not to give a shit to, uh, about when dealing with you about their obedience to the state constitution? Do you not want them to give a shit whether the facts of the situation they're looking at with you actually are violative of the statute? Do you want them to completely ignore department training at at your expense? Do you want them to violate department policy that is in place to protect you? So yeah, right-wingers, don't do this whole like rah-rah, sis-boom-ba thing. Think about it. If you were the guy and you were being wronged, wouldn't you want the officer to be obedient to that so you wouldn't be wrong. I've got another video I'm going to be doing some here in the next, sometime in the next couple of weeks about people who engage in cop worship and believe in gun rights and why that is a completely contradictory paradigm. If you found this to be a thoughtful and cogent breakdown of uh, qualified immunity and the circumstances with the current event and how it plays in and the history and the law and so forth, please help me to be here for you. Uh, go to drreality.news. Take a look at income tax shattering the myths. Uh, Go ahead and get yourself a copy because it's much like this presentation. It takes you back to what Congress was originally doing with the income tax laws, which, by the way, has never changed in, I don't know, 110 years, somewhere somewhere in that range. Has never changed. 
the people that Congress imposed the tax on way back then are the same people that are liable for the tax today, which I'm going to tell you is not the vast majority of Americans. So whether or not you choose to do anything about the information you find in income tax shutter, I guarantee you, you, it will blow your mind. You will enjoy the hell out of it. You will never, ever be able to look at the federal government the same way after you've read Income Tax Shattering the Mess.